good to worship with you, church family, and uh, had the blessing of preaching at First Baptist in Holly a couple weeks ago, but I missed being with you all, so it's, uh, and uh, I, I love preaching to our own people, our own body, and our own church family. So uh, as, as Daniel mentioned in his prayer, uh, our, our message this morning is going to be on prayer and the Trinity. So we're going to be in several different passages this morning, so you're welcome to turn along. Uh, turn to those passages or listen along as I, as I read them. Uh, it should be in your uh, notes there, the references that we're going to be looking at today. But prayer in the Trinity, Pastor Daniel mentioned a couple weeks ago when he mentioned my message, he said, Does, that, that sounds kind of theological, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, a little bit. It, it'll be a, a, a little bit of theology, but it's good for us. Uh, we need the theology and doctrine of God's word because it strengthens our faith and, and should empower our prayers. So it was my, my first year in seminary. I was sitting two or three rows back in my systematic theology class, and I was ready for the semester to go deep into theology. Uh, my wife will tell you I'm a big theology nerd, so I, I've got so many bookshelves of books I haven't read, and, uh, um, and probably never will read them all, but big theology nerd, so I'm super excited about taking this theology class in seminary, and so my professor comes in this first class period, and he goes through the walkthrough of the syllabus, he lays out the land of the class for the semester, and then he did two unexpected things. First, our first assignment for the semester was to take a note card, this was going to be due on the second week of class, take a note card, write your name on the note card, write three prayer requests on the note card, get a little one-inch picture of yourself, attach that to the note card, get it laminated, and turn it in the second week of class. And we were going to get credit for that, okay? Easy enough, easy enough assignment. So we did that, and, and we, we handed in our cards uh, the second week of class, and all that was done... So our professor could pray for us by face, by name, specific request for every one of his students. And he did for that entire semester. And maybe still does. The second unexpected thing he, he did was we ended our first class period as we approached that semester. And he said, now let's end our class period like all true theologians in prayer. So that class of about 100 students all knelt down at their chairs and prayed for God to work in us that semester. I learned from that that the end goal of our theology is not merely to know theology, but ultimately to know God himself. And along with the word of God, we come to know God through the time we spend in communion with him in prayer. So this morning, we will look into the Word together to connect our theology and our prayer. And when you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, it has a direct effect on your prayer life. When you start to understand the glory and the beauty of the Trinity at a deep heart level, it will give you the desire and the confidence to pray more and to pray for greater things. So this morning, we're going to ask two questions and these are the two main points on your outline. First, what is the Trinity? And second, what is Trinitarian prayer? So first, what is the Trinity? 
The biblical teaching on the Trinity is this. There is one and only one God. And this one God exists eternally in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes this very clear. First, there is one and only one God. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. Mono, one, theist, uh, theistic, God. There's one God and only one God. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And James says in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. We could go to other passages that that speak of this as well. The Bible is very clear that there is but one God, but also that this God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So passages listed on your outlines there. First, 1 Corinthians 8.6 speaks of the Father. It says, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And of the Son, Romans 9, 5 says, to them, speaking of the Israelites, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And of the Spirit, Hebrews 9, 14 calls the Holy Spirit the eternal Spirit. Being eternal is true only of God, so therefore the Spirit is God. And we could go to many other passages that explain that there are three persons in one God. So, Christians throughout the centuries have confessed this. Christians early on in the first three centuries had to fight diligently for this precious doctrine. And here's a statement of faith that the early Christians and Christians throughout the centuries have confessed. In the Athanasian Creed, it says, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal, and yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. This is a mystery. This isn't a math problem we have to figure out. This is a mystery we embrace and worship God for. I love how a theologian named Gregory of Nazianzus back in the 300s put it. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them as three than I am carried back to the one. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch. And I cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. So this is who God is. This this is the God who made us, and he invites us to know him as such and to enjoy a relationship with him in this life that begins in this life and continues on forever. And one of the greatest ways that we grow in our relationship with this triune God is through prayer. Now, we know that the Bible teaches us to pray to God, but what does it mean if God is a trinity of persons? How does that affect our prayers? So do we, do we pray to all three or only to the Father, or do we just pray to God in general? You know, also, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? 
Why are we never told to pray in the Holy Spirit's name or in the Father's name? What's so specific about Jesus' name that we pray specifically in His name? And what does it mean, as Ephesians 6 says, to pray in the Spirit? So we're going to look at all of those aspects of uh, the Trinity in prayer this morning and answer those questions and Answer those questions not just so that we could get big theological heads, but so that our hearts are filled with awe and wonder over who God is, which in turn should move us to pray more to Him and to pray for greater things. So what is the role of each person in the Trinity when it comes to prayer? What is Trinitarian prayer? Essentially, what is biblical prayer? So second main question, what is Trinitarian prayer? So Pastor Daniel and Pastor Lee have given two great definitions for prayer in our series so far. Let me just repeat both of those prayers. The the definition that Daniel gave is this, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God, God the Father, in the name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. And Pastor Lee gave the definition from John Bunyan last week. He said, prayer is the sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of our heart and soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. Both of those are amazing definitions of prayer and 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 worth memorizing to get them deep into your, into your heart. So did you notice something about both of those definitions, though? They're inherently Trinitarian, because prayer is Trinitarian. So I'm going to offer a shorter definition, because I'm going to focus on specifically the Trinitarian nature of prayer, and it's this. Trinitarian prayer is a pouring out of our heart to the Father in the name of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a pouring out of our heart to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. So prayer is first, it's a pouring out of our hearts. It's not just repeating words or or saying our prayers. It's an engagement of our heart and soul with God. Now, you can pour out your heart and soul to God through a written prayer or through a spontaneous prayer or through repeating a prayer, but it is, all, all true prayers, as Psalm 62, 8 says, is a pouring out of our hearts to God. But as we find in the Bible, the normal pattern of pouring out our heart is to pour out our heart to the Father. So prayer is first prayer to the Father. So in, in the Bible, the prevailing pattern of prayer is prayer addressed to the Father. So Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 says to his disciples, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. And of course, Jesus modeled this throughout his life when he was praying to his Father. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying to Jesus or praying to the Holy Spirit. Because they're fully God and and prayer is to God. And we find examples in the Bible of a prayer to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 12.8. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. And the Lord there is referring to Jesus. So Paul was pleading with Jesus to remove the thorn 
uh, in his flesh, but he's praying that specifically to Jesus. So there's nothing wrong with praying to the Son or praying to the Spirit. But the normal pattern of prayer should be prayer to the Father. So moms and dads, as you're teaching your kids how to pray, often one of the ways that we teach young ones to pray is, is dear Jesus, to, to begin our prayers with dear Jesus. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but the, we should teach them the normal pattern of prayer is to the Father, through Christ, as we'll see, but prayers to the Father. So Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, but there's a problem. And Pastor Daniel mentioned this last week or two weeks ago. None of us by nature are children of God. Some talk about the universal fatherhood of God, which is not true. You're not born into this world as a child of God. Ephesians 2 says you were born as a son of disobedience and a child of wrath. We may not like to think about that and and view ourselves in that way, but the remarkable truth is that God in His mercy looked down on sons of and daughters of disobedience like us and said, I want them in my family. Galatians 4, 4 through 6 tells us how this happens. Paul writes in verses 4 through 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus, through His redeeming work on the cross, for everyone who believes in Him receives adoption as a son or a daughter of God. What belongs to Jesus by nature, He is the unique Son of God, becomes ours by grace. We become sons and daughters of God through faith in the Son. But Galatians 4, 6 tells us more about our adoption and how it relates to prayer when verse 6 says, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That, that, that term, Abba, was a, uh, the, the same phrase that a child would speak to their, to their father. So this, this affectionate cry of a child to his father is the same cry that we are able to pray to God as our Father. He is not just this great transcendent being who is beyond us and unapproachable. He, he tells us in Christ to call Him Father, dear Father. And He loves us as a Father. I love how Fred Sanders puts it in his little book on the Trinity. He says, pray like a son of God. Ladies, pray like a daughter of God because that is who we are. Pray like a son of God when you don't feel like a son, because sometimes we don't. We know that as sons and daughters in God's family, there are not just privileges of that, but there's also responsibilities of that, and we, we so often fail, sometimes massively, to live up to those responsibilities. And in, when we're in that condition under the weight of our sins, knowing we're not living lives that are truly worthy of being called sons and daughters of God, we can feel undeserving of calling God Father. But we need to remember that even when we're not living like sons and daughters, God is still our Father. Martin Luther teaches us how to pray 
when you don't feel like a son. He says, in serious temptations when the conscience is wrestling with the judgment of God, it is inclined to call God not a father, but an unjust, angry, cruel tyrant and judge. And in, in this crying, which Satan stirs up in our hearts, is felt strongly, for it seems then that God has forsaken us and will throw us down into hell. This is the time to turn our, our, our eyes away from the law and from the sense of our own conscience and instead lay hold of, by faith on the promise, the word of grace and life that raises the conscience up again so that it begins to say, Although the law accuses me, and sin and death make me ever so afraid, yet my God, you promise grace, righteousness, and everlasting life through Jesus Christ. And so the promise brings a sighing and a groaning which cries, Abba, Father. If you feel like the Father hates you because of what you've done, you're not going to approach him like a son or a daughter. But if you believe that the Father's love for you in Christ never changes or wavers, even when your sins are many, you will always find the confidence to approach him, certain of his love. So pray like a son when you don't feel like a son, and pray like a son who knows that he is loved. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 9 through 11, he addresses the fathers and the crowd there. He says, which one of you... If his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Dads, when your daughter asks you for lunch, how many of you will take a plate, go out to the backyard, grab a rock, put a snake on the side, bring it in. Here, honey. All right, any dads? Oh, some of you probably would do that. Okay. <laughs> As a joke. All right. No, you're going to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, something nice uh, for your daughter or your son. Dad, Jesus says, dads, he says, you're evil. <laughs> you who are evil. Dads, you're evil, but you still, you still know how to good, give good things to your sons. How much more Will your heavenly Father, who is perfect in love, give good things to us, his, his children, when we ask of him? So we should ask of the Father, of good things, of things that are needful for us, of, uh, of things that our, our hearts desire, things, as long as they're consistent with his will, that our hearts desire, we should call out to God. I, I love how Charles Spurgeon prayed to God like this, as, as a son who knew he was loved. Uh, as, as some of you know, Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from the 1800s, he, he suffered terribly with gout for, for much of his adult life. And in, in that pain, he, he gave a, um, he, he told of a scenario in a time when he was suffering in extreme pain. And here's what he wrote. He said, when I was racked some months ago with pain to an extreme degree so that I could no longer bear it without crying out. I asked all to go out from the room and leave me alone. And then, I had, and, and then I had nothing I could say to God but this. Thou art my father, and I am thy child. 
And thou, as my father, art tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as thou makest me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Wilt thou hide thy face from me, my father? Wilt thou still lay a heavy hand on me and not give me a smile from thy countenance? He said, so I pleaded and I ventured to say when I was quiet and they came back who watched me, I shall never have such pain again from this moment for God has heard my prayer. He says, I bless God that ease came and the racking pain never returned. What a beautiful example of how to pray like a son who knows he's loved. That doesn't mean that every time you plead for God for relief that he will give you relief. We trust in his sovereign purposes even when we don't understand. But we should always have the freedom to call out to God like this, knowing that he hears us and is able to give us the good things that we ask for. What a wonderful father we have. It's already so good, just in, in how deep the love of the father is for us and being a prayer-hearing father. But there's more for us as we move on to the work of the son in prayer as our mediator. So we pray to the father, Secondly, in the name of the Son. Jesus says in John 16, 23, and I'll read verse 24 as well. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It doesn't mean just tagging on the phrase in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers as some kind of magical incantation that gives our prayers special power. Instead, name in the ancient world stood for the person himself. So when in John 1.12, it speaks of believing in his name, referring to in, believing in Jesus' name, it means believing in him, in the person. So name is synonymous with the person and what that person is like, their character. Name also includes the idea of authority. So when a police officer says, I don't know if they still say this, but uh, stop in the name of the law, that police officer is, is saying stop not based on my authority, but on the authority of the law. So in Acts 4-7, when Peter was asked, by what name did you heal this crippled man? He answered in verse 10, it was by the name of Jesus, by his authority, by his power. So praying in Jesus' name means praying by his authority and consistent with his character. So if we're going to pray consistent with Christ's character, we shouldn't pray for things that we know that Christ is opposed to. We should pray for things that are consistent with what we know Christ teaches and, and, and the truth of Christ in his word. And by praying by Jesus' authority, it means that we should never approach the Father based on our own perceived authority, or our own works, but instead based on Christ's finished work on the cross for sinners. Think of it like this. 
Here's a really helpful analogy I read. Consider a person who writes a letter and decides he does not like the stamps produced by the post office. Instead, he draws a little picture on the top corner of the envelope, or maybe he finds a sticker to put there. Maybe he even uses a stamp from a foreign country that he likes better. In none of these instances will the letter get to its intended destination. Only the government-approved stamp will work because it represents that the proper payment has been made to the proper authorities for the delivery of this letter. In the same way, we should always pray in mindfulness of Jesus' death on the cross and his ascension to the presence of the Father where he now intercedes for us. We must pray, in other words, in a spirit of repentance and faith in Christ's merits, not presuming to approach the Father in our own goodness. Whether or not we say the words in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, praying in Jesus' name means praying with faith in what he has paid, his substitutionary death, to the proper authority, the Father, in order to make our prayers efficacious or effective. Just a beautiful illustration, uh, simple, but Christ is the only way that our prayers are going to make it to the Father. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's the only way that sinners like us can be ushered into the presence of God to offer our prayers to Him. So we may try to pray putting the stickers of our own good deeds on the prayers as giving us access to God or, or trying to say the right words or the right formula or pretending that our righteousness gives us access to God. It doesn't. Only Jesus gives us access to the Father. So here's a couple things of what that means for us in our prayers and in our life in general. On your best week, you still need a mediator. It doesn't matter if you've read 10 chapters of the Bible every day. It doesn't matter if you've gone to every church or helped out with backyard Bible clubs. It doesn't matter if you wrote a big check to the church. It doesn't matter if you've prayed every day faithfully through your prayer list. You still need a mediator because there's all of that sin that you can't atone for and that can only find cleansing through Christ. You still have dirty feet that need to be cleansed by Jesus so you can approach the Father in prayer. So we should never come to the Father impressed with ourselves like the parable that Jesus gave of the religious leader who was praying in the temple, Father, I thank you that I'm not like all of these other sinners around me, but instead we should come like the tax collector who is beating his chest, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's always our posture in prayer. On your best week, you still need a mediator. On your worst week, you still have a mediator. Jesus doesn't stop being your mediator if you blow up at your wife and kids. He doesn't stop being your mediator if you pass a certain number of times that you've repeated the same sin again. He doesn't stop being your mediator if you fall into some sin that you thought you were never capable of falling into. Jesus is our mediator because we sin. 
precisely because he sins, so he doesn't stop being our mediator when we sin. On your worst week, you still have a mediator. You simply approach the Father in the name of Jesus with a broken and contrite heart, asking for his cleansing, and he cleanses you, and he welcomes you to enjoy restored fellowship with him in prayer. Praise God for Jesus, our mediator. So we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, and last of all, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that the secret of true prayer is found in three words, in the Spirit. And those three words are found in Ephesians 6.18. So this is the passage where Paul tells the Ephesian believers to put on the whole armor of God that they may be able to stand firm against Satan and, and demons and their attack against them. And he tells them that they must pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So what did Paul mean when he told the Ephesian believers to pray in the Spirit? That phrase, in, of in the Spirit means in the realm of or under the influence of the Spirit. So when a person is praying in the Spirit, as Clinton Arnold says in his commentary on Ephesians, he says they are seeking the Spirit's guidance, direction, and help constantly in prayer. They are seeking the Spirit's guidance, the Spirit's guidance, direction, and help constantly in prayer. So how, how can we actually pray in the Spirit, though? So first, we have to make sure that our lives are being lived in the Spirit before we can pray in the Spirit. So the New Testament has this phrase, in the Spirit, many different places, and it's referring to not just prayer, but the whole of the Christian life. So, for instance, a few examples. Galatians 5.16, we're told to walk in the Spirit. Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3, we confess that Jesus is Lord in the Spirit. And Philippians 3.3, we worship in the Spirit. So the entirety of the Christian life is to be in lived in the Spirit, being led, guided, and empowered by the Holy Spirit in obedience to God. So when our lives are being lived in the Spirit, or as Paul, Paul says, filled with the Spirit, our prayers will be prayed in the Spirit. But if our lives are being lived resisting the Spirit, grieving the Spirit, we cannot possibly be be praying in the Spirit. So we need to make sure our lives are first being lived in the Spirit, and then we will experience the empowering of the Spirit in our prayers. So I love how John Piper helpfully sums up what praying in the Spirit means. He says, praying in the Spirit means that our prayers are moved and guided by the Holy Spirit. Moved and guided by the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at what that might look like in your life. When you feel the need to pray, the desire to pray, pray. The Holy Spirit is the one who awakens in us that desire to pray. So sometimes when I'm just busy about my day, getting done my task uh, and, and, and things to do, I will feel the Spirit prompting me to pray. 
And what I need to do is not say, but I've got so many things I've got to get done. No, God, God is wanting me to stop what I'm doing and pray. So when you're sensing that, follow the leading of the Spirit and pray. So if you have desires to spend more time in prayer, which I pray that God is working that in you through this series, even as we're praying that for each other as we go through this series, if God is working in you the desire to make time for prayer, make time for that. Clear your schedule for that. Get up early in the morning or stay up later at night for that. Cut things out of your life to make that happen. That is the Spirit working in you, causing you to desire communion with God in prayer. Make time for that. If someone in the church, maybe after the service, for instance, shares a burden with you that they're going for, and you feel the need at that moment to pray for them, ask them, can I pray for you right now? If your burden to Start being more systematic in your prayers because often, just like if we just leave it to ourselves without any kind of method or system, our, our prayers are aimless and, 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 and we could fall into the same old ruts. But if, if, if God is burdening you to, to, to maybe start a prayer journal or, or write some you know, prayer cards that you could be praying for, just, just do that. Take the time to do that. So when the Holy Spirit is moving in you to pray, Follow his prompting and pray. And also, the Holy Spirit guides us in prayer. Seek the Spirit's guidance in what to pray for. I think it's appropriate at times, at times during our prayer times to ask the Spirit to bring to mind, to our mind and to our hearts, things to pray for. So this isn't saying we're waiting to hear God's voice to speak to us and tell us pray for this, but it's asking for the Spirit to burden our hearts with what He desires to pray for. I would encourage you to do this. I find when I, when I ask the Holy Spirit to, to, to burden my heart for things to pray for, there will were, there were come things to my mind that I don't normally pray for. And, and, and just wait and, and, and seek the Holy Spirit to lead you in your prayers. So sometimes the Holy Spirit in an instant or over many years, lays a burden on our hearts to pray for very specific things, all consistent with God's revealed word, revealed will in his word. And sometimes God prompts us to pray for things because he intends to answer those prayers. And that's why he's prompting you to pray for those and to keep praying for those things. So we should always be open to the Spirit prompting us and moving us in these ways in our prayers. So I want to end our sermon this morning with a scene painted by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. It pictures beautifully what Trinitarian prayer is all about. He writes this, An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He is trying to get in touch with God, but if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God, God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. 
God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or the bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. That makes me want to pray more. That makes me want to, to know God more and praying and enjoying communion with him through prayer. So let's pray now. Ask God to work in us a greater desire in him for prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the Father who is always more ready to hear than we are to pray. And you are more ready to give us more than we desire or deserve. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for giving us access to the Father through your death and your resurrection and your ascension. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for moving in our hearts to call upon our Father as Abba, Father. Oh God, would you fill our hearts with wonder of who you are as the triune God, one God, eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would you move in us to pray more by your Holy Spirit? Would you give us boldness in our prayers and confidence and joy in our prayers with Jesus as our mediator? And would you give us desire and hope to pray for great things from you, Father, because you love us deeply. You prove that through sending your Son. You prove that daily in your care for us. We thank you, God, for bringing us into fellowship with you, our triune God. May we seek diligently you and knowing you in prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.